if you're anything like me, you're looking around at our country and you're looking at our world and you're scratching your head. Our country seems to be descending to a point where truth is all relative and common sense is no longer common. We're not sure what a man is anymore. We're not sure what a woman is anymore. I teach public school and it's, it's there in public school. We're not really sure what things are anymore. It's, it's just a total confusion. And I look at our world and I find myself worrying. Uh, I used to find myself worrying about this and I have six young kids. I'm like, what's the world gonna be like when my six young kids become adults? What's, the, what's our country gonna look like? And my fear for my children's future has dissipated over the years for, for two main reasons. Number one, Jesus said that troubles would come. In John 16, Jesus said, I've said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. In Christ, we can have peace. The world offers tribulation, it offers frustration, but in Christ, we can have peace. The Apostle Paul said in 2 Timothy 3.12 that all who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. So the fact that we have trouble and hardship and persecution, it's actually should something, be something that brings us joy and brings us comfort because it shows that Jesus knew what he was talking about. Ironically, the words of Christ are being fulfilled in our suffering and in our frustration. So that's one reason why I have hope for my kids' future, but another reason is the church. And that's what we're going to focus tonight. The world has always been against the church. The world has always tried to conquer the church, to disprove the resurrection. There's always some TV special that comes out, hey, we're here to disprove the resurrection of Jesus. Okay, you've been trying for 2,000 years, one more attempt can't hurt, but here you go. And they always are trying to disprove the resurrection, or they're trying to find flaws or contradictions in the Bible. Ever since Genesis chapter 3, we have been in a, a spiritual state, a continuous state of spiritual warfare. Our spiritual mothers and fathers have always faced persecution for what they believed in. Sometimes the persecution was simply verbal, sometimes it is physical, and sometimes it's even death. A few years ago, if you recall in the news, there were 21 Coptic Christians, 21 Egyptian Christians that were beheaded on a Libyan beach by members of ISIS. Our brothers in Christ refused to denounce Christ. They refused to leave Christianity and they refused to forsake the church. So they were beheaded and their death was celebrated by those who hate Christ. As bleak as the, as the world can look, the church not only has continued to stand its ground, but she continues to advance the Great Commission by confessing and proclaiming the name of Jesus. So if you guys have your Bible, if you can turn to 1 Timothy 3, we're going to read 1 Timothy 3 verses 14 through 16. And then we're, we're going to flip to the book of Acts chapter 19 for some historical perspective, because I love history. And then we'll return to 1 Timothy 3 and break down the passage. So it's 1 Timothy 3, 14 through 16. And this is the Apostle Paul uh, speaking. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He, meaning Jesus, was manifest in the flesh. He was vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. The reason why Paul wrote to Timothy was to inform Timothy how a local church should be structured. Now, if you look over at 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3, we learn that Timothy is in the city of Ephesus. He is one of the elders of the church 
in the, uh, our, one of the elders in the church of, of Ephesus. This is a key detail for us to remember. Ephesus was a capital city of the Roman Empire, uh, where, or the Roman province where the city was located. Ephesus was the main economic and cultural hub of that region. And the main attraction of, that, um, of the city was the Temple of Artemis. Uh, the temple had these massive pillars, uh, these massive buttresses. You could see it from miles away. It was one of the main central hubs of the entire region of, of Asia. And if you're a history nerd out there, uh, the temple of Artemis was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. So if all the things that were built in the ancient world, all the, the designs, all the buildings, all the structures, the temple of Artemis was actually one of the top seven things that was ever built. So people came from miles around to worship Artemis, the goddess Artemis. They came to see this temple and to, um, to check it out. You can see it from miles and miles away. <clears throat> so with that in mind, if you guys can turn to um, Acts chapter 19. Keep a finger in, in 1 Timothy. We're going to come back to 1 Timothy. But go to Acts chapter 19. And I just want to give you some, uh, some background on what happened in Ephesus. Okay, so Timothy is a pastor in the local church in the city of Ephesus, Ephesus is located in the Roman Empire. It's a massive city with one of the ancient wonders of the world located in that city. And that ancient wonder was dedicated to worship of the goddess Aramaeus. So Acts chapter 19, uh, verse 23. About the time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way, meaning Christianity. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Aramaeus, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Aramaeus may be counted as nothing, and that she even may be deposed from her magnif magnificence, she whom all of Asia and the world worship. When they heard these things, they were enraged and crying out, Great is Aramaeus of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together to the theater, dra uh, dragging with them Gaius, and I'm not sure how to say a guy's name, Aristocrus, whatever, you guys can read it, uh, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. So Paul plants this church in Ephesus and continues the mission of sharing the gospel in the city. Apparently, God in his great mercy was convicting, convicting sinners of their need for Christ, and people were placing their faith in Jesus. This was happening at such a great degree that a disturbance arose in Ephesus regarding the Christians. But the problem wasn't about the theology of the Christians, but the conversion of the Christians was actually hurting the business of men like Demetrius and other silversmiths and other workers who built shrines to the goddess Artemis. Verse 24 tells us that Demetrius built these silver shrines for the temple. That was his job. That's how he made his wealth. And then he said to other tradesmen in verse 25, he gathers his group around him and says, men, you know that from this business, from making shrines to the goddess Artemis, we have our wealth. And since this temple was so big and people came from all over the area and Rome was such a powerful empire, business was really good for Demetrius. It was booming. He was making money. He was making money. All of a sudden, now he's not making the money that he used to make because these people 
used to buy the trinkets and the shrines and the idols and go to the temple are not doing that anymore. They're confessing and proclaiming this Jesus who does not have temples and dolls and idols and all these things like that. He's, Demetrius is losing all this business. So he's getting worried. This local church in Ephesus, and this is where it's really cool and applicable, for, applicable to us, this little church in Ephesus is turning the city upside down. All of a sudden, the goddess Artemis, with her massive temple and her large pillars and these large buttresses and these silversmiths and these workers and the attendants at this temple, all these things that are devoted to this temple, inside this massive cultural center in Rome, all of a sudden they're threatened by this little local church that's changing the city upside down. The change is drawing people away from Artemis worship, but the change is also affecting the wealth of the tradesmen who make their business off Artemis worship. So the tradesmen become enraged and began in seizing Christian leaders and dragging them to the theater. Maybe this will slow down Christianity. If we go get their leaders and we bring them to a theater where there's thousands of people, that's got to be intimidating. They got to stop at that point, right? That's scary. Imagine Greg or the elders of our church being brought to Paul Brown Stadium filled with 65,000 people who are yelling and screaming and threatening them. That's got to be an intimidating scene. A massive riot was on the verge of breaking out in Ephesus because of our Christian fathers and mothers. Because of them, because of the little local church in Ephesus, a major riot was about to break out in the capital, the Roman capital of that province. The town clerk steps in in verse 35, and he's able to quiet the crowd and bring, chaos, and bring peace to a chaotic situation. Paul decided it was best for him to leave Ephesus, and so he did. But this little local church that was planted in the city had a confession that was very different from what was being said, from very different from the goddess Artemis, and very different from the Roman culture. What the world confessed was not at all in alignment with what the church in Ephesus confessed. The followers of Artemis tried to shut down the local church. They rounded up the leaders, they reinforced their love of Artemis, and they were committed to keeping Artemis as the main focal point of Ephesian worship. Even the local church faced hostility and persecution because of the gospel, the world did not overcome the church. They stayed unified, they stayed together, and they stayed grounded in their confession of Christ. So when Paul wrote to 1 Timothy, and he told Timothy to stay in Ephesus, don't leave, stay in Ephesus, uh, to properly um, structure and regulate the local church in Ephesus, he was ordering Timothy to stay in a place that was very hostile towards the gospel. So with that kind of background in mind, go to um, 1 Timothy 3.15. <clears throat> the local church and the confession that the local church held are a surefire protection against the shifting sands of the fusion culture. Just as the local church in Ephesus stood its ground against the worship of Artemis, so the local church today, Grace Covenant Church and other faithful churches, can do the same thing in America. We can stand our ground and turn the city upside down by our confession of Christ. So let's look at what Paul talks about uh, when he talks about the church in 1 Timothy 3.15. This is what Paul said. If I delay, you, Timothy, may know how one ought to act, one how, sorry, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. In this verse, Paul is using the backdrop of the Artemis temple to show how great the church is. 
He said the church is the church of the living God. Make sure you guys catch that. The church is the church of the living God. It belongs to a living God. Our God was not created. Our God is not something that a silversmith can make. Our God has always existed. He was not born from some other God or from some other being. He is eternal. He has always existed. This is one of Demetrius' complaints in Acts 19 when he said, This Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. Demetrius is out of business if he becomes a Christian. He can't make a god of the Bible. He can't build a god of the Bible. Artemis was, a man, Artemis was man-made and pointless. She belongs to the history books, but our God has always existed and lives today as we speak in worship. Then Paul said that the church is the pillar and the buttress of the truth. Remember, the temple of Artemis had these massive temples and buttresses. It was huge. You could see it from miles away. Huge columns, huge pillars, huge buttresses. It was the focal point of the city. They needed these big uh, pillars because the size of the temple was just massive. The temple needed a huge support system so all of Ephesus could see her. Just like today, if you guys go to Washington, D.C., you have to go to the White House and take a picture. You just have to. It's the cultural center. It's where the presidents live. It's the iconic, central, uniting thing of our country. It's not very, I mean, it's big, but compared to other things, it's not very big. There's not a lot of people that, that, um, that live there. But if something were to happen to the White House, it would hurt all of us. All of us would be shocked if something happened to the White House. If it went up in fire or if it was bombed or anything that happened, we would all be in shock. The White House is that cultural center of Washington, D.C. Likewise, the, the Temple of Aramaeus is that cultural center of the Ephesian city. The purpose of the church, Paul says, Paul took this imagery of these pillars and buttresses of the Aramaeus Temple, and he said the purpose of the church is to lift up the truth of the living God to hold the truth of the gospel up high for all the world to see. So just like those pillars and those buttresses held up this huge temple for everyone to see Artemis, the church, the local church, the church universal is meant to lift up the truth of God, lift up the gospel of God. Jesus said that we are the salt of the earth. He said that we are the light of the world. He said that we are a city set on a hill. The church is meant to share the truth of God with the entire world, from Ephesus to Cincinnati. And the pillars and the buttresses of Artemis' temple simply lift up a false handmade goddess. But the church is a pillar and buttress of the truth that points to a living God who sent his son to die for us, to forgive our sins, that we may receive salvation through faith alone in Christ alone. So what is the truth that we are to lift up to the world? What is the confession that we're supposed to hold? Simply, it's Jesus, but that can mean a lot of things to a lot of different people. So let's narrow it down a little bit. In verse 16, Paul quotes an early creed that had been circulating. And for the last couple of months, I, I personally went through a, a study on 1 Timothy today. That's why I'm studying it or talking about it tonight. And for my research, when I was just personally studying 1 Timothy, a lot of um, commentators believe that this creed here in verse 16 uh, may not have originated with Paul, but actually originated with the Ephesian church. And Paul is simply quoting it back to Timothy and the Ephesian church as they would read this uh, together. So this, uh, this confession here, this creed here, it was established by the early Christians who were experiencing, remember, hardship, hostility, persecution from, um, from men like Demetrius, from you know, taking people away from the, uh, the, the temple of Aramaeus. 
That's what's going on here with this creed, that it was being circulated in Ephesus, and it was a unifying point for the church. They unified around this doctrine. So what did they confess? Let's, uh, let's look at it one by one here. The first thing they said was, he was manifested in the flesh. Jesus was born a baby, and he grew to become a man. Jesus is God, but he has skin on. He's God, but he has skin on, and he walked among us. Paul clarifies this in Colossians 1.15 when he said that Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God. You can't see God, but you can see Jesus. Jesus walked among us. He is the visible image of the invisible God. That's Colossians 1.15. Aramaeus did not walk among the people unless Demetrius made an idol of her and he carried around with, with him wherever he went. In that way, Aramaeus would walk among the people, but Aramaeus was was fake, was handmade. Jesus walked among us. He was a man, and he walked among us. The next thing the church confessed was that he was vindicated by the Spirit. Men nailed Jesus to a tree because they thought he was guilty. Paul explained in Galatians chapter 3 that anyone who hangs on a tree is cursed. It's actually a quote from Deuteronomy chapter 1, which said, a hanged man is accursed by God. Jesus was crucified, and if Jesus stayed dead, if he did not rise from the dead, if he stayed in the tomb, the possibility would certainly remain that Jesus was cursed by God, just like Deuteronomy said. But the creed confesses, the early church in Ephesus confessed that Jesus was vindicated by the Spirit. How did the Spirit vindicate Jesus? Paul said in Romans 1:4, Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. I'll read that again, Romans 1, 4. Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. The Spirit vindicated Jesus through resurrection. Jesus rose from the dead. That's how we know he was vindicated by the Spirit. Jesus was not cursed by God, but he did take our curse on himself. So he was manifest in the flesh, he was vindicated by the Spirit, and then the church confessed he was seen by angels. Angels witnessed Jesus' resurrection. They were in the empty tomb. When people came to him, the angels said, what are you doing here? He's not dead. He is alive. Angels also witnessed his birth. They witnessed his temptation in the wilderness, and they witnessed his ascension into heaven. Jesus was, is proclaimed among the nations. That's the next thing they confess. In Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, God told Abraham that in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. This blessing is fulfilled by Jesus, who is in Abraham's family line. Before his ascension, Jesus gave his disciples and the church the Great Commission. We are to go and make disciples of all nations. This has always been the mission of the church, to lift up the truth of God and proclaim it to the world so that all the world knows. If we fast forward to Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, the apostle John reports, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes, all peoples, and all languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. It's Revelation 7, 9. A great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes, from all peoples, and all languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. God uses his church to proclaim the gospel among the nations. And that's something that the early church confessed. The next thing they said was that he was believed on in the world. Salvation is through faith in Christ alone. 
Paul said in Romans chapter 10, verse 9, that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and we believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. Our salvation has always been through belief. John 3.16, which is one of the most famous verses in the Bible, reads, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that, over, that whoever believes in him, whoever believes in him, should not perish but have eternal life. Salvation has always been through belief. It's always been through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. The last thing that the church confessed is that Jesus was taken up in glory. Jesus ascended into heaven. He did not resurrect, live for a few more years, and then die all over again. He resurrected and then was taken up into glory. He ascended into heaven. He is enthroned in heaven and remains there until he returns. So in these six lines, the Ephesian church, who was battling all this hostility, all this persecution, rioting in the city, having their church leaders um, seized, this little church in Ephesus confessed great things about Christ. They confessed that he was born a baby, yet he was fully God. They confessed that he died, but he, he was vindicated through resurrection. They confessed that angels witnessed his life, specifically his resurrection. They confessed the story of redemption through Christ will be proclaimed among the nations. They confessed that salvation through belief, salvation is through belief in Christ alone. And they confessed that Jesus ascended into heaven where he is alive and well. The theological ground they covered in 26 words is phenomenal. The odds seem stacked against the local church in Ephesus, but not only did she survive, she thrived. With all this hostility around her, she thrived. She thrived in opposition. She thrived in a polytheistic society. She thrived when truth was relative. She thrived with, when she was threatened with arrest, riot, and death. She thrived with no money. The church thrived with no building. The church thrived with no professional workers, no tradesmen, and no attendants to keep the ground. The church thrived in the midst of the greatest empire the world has ever seen. Against all earthly odds, the church, this little local church of the living God, boldly and unapologetically confessed Christ. That was, their unifying, uh, that was their unifying theme. They confessed Christ in a world that did not like him. My friends and church family, this is what meet wants to do as well. As the shifting sands of the American culture continue to turn against us, may we link arms together and confess that God is alive and confess the things that the church confessed in verse 16. We must trust that Christ is king and that his words are unfailing. To close us, let's remember what Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18. He asked Peter, who do you say that I am? Jesus said to Peter, who do you say that I am? And Peter confessed, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. In response, Jesus said this, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church. I will build my church. That's what Jesus said. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. For 2,000 years, the gates of hell have tried to prevail against the church and has failed. The church has expanded and grown everywhere. The gates of hell have not been able to prevail against the church for 2,000 years. For 2,000 years, this promise of Jesus about his church has held true and it will always hold true. This is our great confidence. This is our unifying force. The gates of hell cannot overcome the church. Satan cannot overcome the church. The temple of Aramaeus cannot overcome the church. The shifting sands of culture cannot overcome the church. Nothing can overcome 
the church. That is a promise from Christ himself, and we can treasure it and hold on to it. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you that you love us. We thank you that you are for us and not against us. We thank you that you promise to be with us. We thank you that you've give us, given us assurance that the gates of hell cannot overcome Grace Covenant Church. It cannot overcome the, uh, the invisible church, the, the global church. God, we are thankful that you will always have victory, that you've won victory for us. We're thankful that one day you will return and make all things new. Father, I pray that we would link together. I pray that we would be unified in confession of who you are. I pray in boldness that we would go and share the world this confession of Christ, that we would share just like our fathers and mothers shared in Ephesus, that we would not be afraid like they were unafraid, but we would seek Christ that would keep our eyes on him and we'd pursue him and tell the world about his greatness. We thank you and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.